You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 35 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I'm your host, Carlton Gover, and I am joined by my co-host, conservative Jonin and David Ian Howe. Our guest tonight is Megan Dennison, a PhD candidate at the Department of Anthropology at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. Megan spent part of 2020 in Greece during the European COVID outbreak, which turned global, was global, is global, and did this while caring for her young daughter. Megan and David have been friends for a very long time, and we are especially excited to have her on with us tonight. Megan, how are you doing and how often do people call you Megan because of Cam Peel? Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm doing all right. Just surviving 2020. And yeah, I've, I've gotten called Megan a few times, once for like half a semester in grad school before I finally corrected the professor. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> I think I know the answer to this question, but I'll just ask for the audience who doesn't know you, what what kind of got you into anthropology? I know you're a, an animal archaeology nerd, as like I am. Well, in anthropology, I think I kind of always had an interest in it. I guess archaeology really came, it was kind of always there. Like even during my childhood, I would go out and dig holes in the backyard. And of course, when I was like eight, I was not looking for artifacts. I was looking for, you know, dinosaurs, of course. Yeah. But I just kind of always had that interests and like there's stuff that's underground that we can find and that can be meaningful. I was also really into time capsules and would like put together time capsules. And one time I buried one and then I came back a couple of days later and realized that it got rained on and, you know, everything was getting ruined. So then I started putting them in the house, like behind the like air conditioner vents, the big, the big ones that come off the ground. And I'm not really sure if I like got all of those out of the house or not before we moved. So yeah, I just kind of was always really interested in, I was kind of like always kind of circling around archaeology, I guess, as a kid. Yeah. Whenever I was, okay, I have one more little story about this, which is kind of funny. When I was in fifth grade, I ended up finding a bird skeleton on the playground at my elementary school. And I picked it up and kept it in a plastic box and I kept it on my desk for part of the year. So I'm a zoologist and like, I always think back to that of like, wow, I was a really weird kid, but I can see <laughs> like my interest in animal bones from a pretty young age. <laughs> did, did the rest of the class know that you had a dead bird like on your desk in the box? I think like my, my friends did, but I don't remember them really being too phased by it. <laughs> <That's good. laughs> I don't remember what happened to it either. I think, you know, maybe like someone finally threw it away at some point, like an adult was like, she doesn't need this. <laughs> did, it, did it end up in uh, the vents? I don't know. I know. I know it's not left at school. It never came home. I think somebody, a teacher or somebody must have thrown it away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, oh. that's, that's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's super funny. And I, 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 you, uh, <laughs> I used to like walk the beach on Long Island, like finding all the dead stuff that would like wash up. And we were at like a weird family party, like in the Hamptons or whatever. Like we, we don't live there, but like we had, a, there was a party there for some reason. And like my mom trying to put on airs for like all of our extended family. And I just came walking in with like 
this hermit crab that I had found <laughs> tied to like a fishing pole that I found and a bunch of driftwood and like a bunch of dead crabs that were hanging on the string. And I was like, look, <laughs> and I brought it into this party. <laughs> it was a good time. They were not thrilled. <laughs> You've always been quite the socialite, haven't you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, moving on. That was a, that was a weird anecdote. <laughs> I love how crabs came back in reference to David. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful callback that I really wish, you know, wasn't brought Shout out, great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that was weird. All right. Anyway, continuing. Megan, I met you at UT. I was an undergrad. Uh, I should say UT Knoxville. But before you went there, you were at East Tennessee State. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And there was like community college in there somewhere too, right? Yes. yes. I've been... Um, I have a lot of degrees. <laughs> I don't think we've had anyone on here yet that's like talked about community college. Do you want to you wanna kind of go into that a little bit? I'd love to. I'm a big fan of community college. Yeah. I was actually slated to go to UT Knoxville after I graduated high school. I'm from Tennessee. I'm from West Tennessee. And I was accepted. I had my dorm all picked out and picked out my meal plan, everything. And um, like three or four days before I graduated high school, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And so we, like as a family, just collectively made the decision that it'd be better if I stayed at home or at least, you know, like didn't go to UT where I, at that point, they didn't have the lottery scholarship that was helping in-state students. So everything would be out of pocket. And so we just decided to be better to just explore my options near home. So I went to my school's guidance counselor and she, you know, was like, well, you should think about Jackson State and told me all the great things about community college. So I applied and, you know, got in and I did two years at the local community college in my hometown. And I had an absolutely wonderful experience there. Uh, I think it was actually really good for me just to have like small class sizes and just have a lot of like one-on-one with instructors. I joined the Student Government Association and actually became the SGA president my second year there. And so that gave me a lot of experiences just with administ- like college administration because I got to have meetings with deans and admin. And I even had, I was even able to like have one-on-one meetings with the university president or the oh, community wow. president. And so it was just a really great, wonderful experience. And I'm a, I'm a really big fan of community colleges. I think that for a lot of students who go to a four-year school and get kind of lost in the shuffle of things, that it may be better for them to take a step back and and go somewhere that has these smaller class sizes where you can really explore your options and get help when you need it, you know, a little bit more accessibly. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with that. Especially if you don't have a major or something picked out, because then you end up, you know, spending all this money when and, and end up can can end up drowning in debt for stuff that you might use later in life, but you don't really know what you're doing for. So I think, yeah, I would, I completely agree. Community college is, is an awesome way to go. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And then I, I ended up transferring to ETSU because I was actually going to go to UT, you know, straight out of high school and major in anthropology. But whenever I graduated from Jackson State Community College, I... Um, was going to go to a liberal arts school and just study sociology. And then I heard that ETSU had an anthropology major that had just been approved. So I ended up transferring to ETSU. And I'd, I'd actually never even heard of ETSU before 
I found out about the anthropology major. I just decided to go up there on a whim and I liked it. I met with a bunch of faculty members and decided to go there and, and, you know, major in anthropology and see what comes next after that. Yeah, that's, that's super cool. Um, I think, isn't that where Spencer went to? Didn't Spencer go to East Tennessee? He went to Middle Tennessee State University. But, oh my gosh, um, all these directions. I can't keep up. <laughs> that's in uh, Murfreesboro, a way less cooler part of Tennessee. That's cool. Um, so did you did you get to do any hands-on field work at ETSU? I did. I went in with most of my gen ed out of the way. So I was able to just take anthropology classes. I took archaeology, a physical anthropology class, and then culture, uh, I think maybe two or three cultural anthropology classes. And my first semester, I was really involved with the new major. They had a new anthropology club. So since I had just done so much work and with clubs at, at Jackson State, I joined that club and was just really involved with other students. And I did a, a research project with one of the cultural anthropologists that first semester. And I was also taking an archaeology class with Jay Franklin, who was archaeologist there at the time. And he asked me, I think in about November of that first semester, if I wanted to join him and some other students on a winter survey of the a rock shelter survey on the Cumberland Plateau. So I said, sure, why not? And I had absolutely no idea what a winter rock shelter survey entailed. Zero clue at all. So I showed up in like right after finals, like mid-December. And I brought like one pair of shoes total that were not like hiking boots. They were just sneakers. And I didn't have like any thermals. I didn't have any, I didn't really even have a good jacket, I don't think. And so I spent a week out there walking bluff lines several miles every day doing route shelter survey. And I was pretty miserable, but I knew that I really liked it. I thought it was really cool what we were doing. So then I came back in January because he had two sessions. He would go in December and then he would go in January. I came back in January much more prepared for the second go. And then uh, that following March, he did a small excavation of a rock shelter site that we had surveyed. And it just continued from there. I was just entrenched in rock shelter survey and excavation for three years that I was at ETSU. So that's great, Megan. Absolutely fantastic. What made you decide to um, then go ahead and pursue your master's degree? And where was that at? So, yeah, I forgot like the the fun part of the story. <laughs> so my second go for the rock shelter survey, we were, again, hiking bluff lines. And we came to this one spot that had a ton of small animal remains, like just bones, because it was like a like a nesting spot or a roosting area of some kind of raptorial bird that was, you know, picking up small rodents, eating them, and then the bones were getting left behind. So anyway, I was just sitting there, like completely uninterested in all the stone tools and ceramics that we're supposed to be looking for. And I was just messing with the bones. And Jay looked over at me and he said, you're a Zoark, kind of in this very like <laughs> accusatory way of like, that's what's wrong with you. You're a Zoark. <laughs> so... I was like, huh, what's a, like, what is that? That sounds really interesting. And so I was really interested in bones. I've been interested in human osteology. I knew my human skeleton pretty well. And so he had a faunal assemblage he had been sitting on for a while, which was the Linville Cave fauna 
that Paul Parmley, who's a zooarchaeologist, a former zooarchaeologist from UT Knoxville, had worked on a little bit, but needed to be finished up. So he gave me that project to start on just to like do like a small zoar project. And with that, I went and trained for a few days with Tanya Perez over at, at um, MTSU, Middle Tennessee State University. Um, I went and worked with her for a few days and she showed me a lot of basics about zooarchaeology. I worked with the paleontologist at ETSU, Lane Schubert, who gave me comparative materials to use. And I worked on that project for a semester. And then I ended up really liking that route. And I started to do more, just small projects in Zoart. And then I applied for my master's to go to UT Knoxville to work with Walter Klippel. I wasn't very skilled at the time that I first looked at that that first assemblage. So once I got to UT and I had taken a, a Zoart class from Klippel and just had a little bit more training under my belt, I ended up re-looking at that assemblage and re- just redid a few things and then ended up publishing it. So I think one of my first publications in zooarchaeology. That's awesome. I'm, I commend you for being brave enough to look at something you've written before and reanalyze it because... <laughs> I have this thing that starts with a T that's sitting on my desktop right now that I'd never want to read ever, ever again. <laughs> so, but that, that, that's awesome. It seems like you had a ton of field experience, you know, at Eastern Tennessee and got exposed to like a bunch of different kind of stuff. Yeah, it was it was a really good experience. I'm glad I I think everything like along the way of getting to this point now has all been beneficial and just like a positive mark in this very long and arduous journey through a PhD program now. (laughs) (laughs) So when you got to UT and you got to like, so I, for the audience listening, UT has one of the, like the largest SOARC assemblages in the country, I want to say, or at least in the Southeast, I want to say. Yeah. One of the largest. Yeah. What was that like? Cause I, I know I, I enjoyed it as an undergrad. So being a grad student there, like especially working with Clipple. It's awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The collections at UT have roughly 11,000 skeletons, vertebrate skeletons, mostly fish and birds and and then a good amount of mammals. But I want to say that it's mostly smaller critters, fish, birds, small mammals, which is what Clipple and Parmalee were both researching. So whenever they were researching one particular animal species, they would collect a lot of the same species just to get enough variation in the skeletons for the uh, for the comparative collection. So basically anything you can think of in the Southeast, UT has at least five, sometimes 20 of the same specimen. So, I mean, it was just so easy to do any kind of faunal analysis with all of that, all of those resources like right there in one place. Yeah, definitely like... Uh, what did I do? I think it, we had that class together where it was like the, was it experimental taphonomy or something like that, or taphonomy and experiments. I can't remember, but got to do all that stuff with like the bones and I had to like saw a deer in half. I remember that. And then have like the possums come eat it. That was cool. But I didn't really get to mess with like the actual collection. I only got to see it as an undergrad, but there's like this giant museum full of like stuff there that I really wanted to, you know, like get to see, but it was pretty cool. Yeah. It was a good, it's still a good experience as I am still there. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I think it is uh finally time to wrap this segment up and we'll Whoa. be right back with segment two. Get out of here. Get out of here. <laughs> 
Welcome back to episode 35 of the Life in Ruins podcast. We are interviewing the awesome and fantastic Megan Dennison, who's a PhD candidate at the Department of Anthropology at University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And we want to start off this section. I heard the story of you and David meeting is quite interesting. Do you mind, do you mind telling us that? <laughs> sure. Yeah, I don't remember. Okay. The thing about UT Knoxville Anthropology Department is before the move to the new building, the anthropology department was in the football stadium. Oh, right. And it was like in this um, these dorms that were built in the 1930s, 1940s for the football players. And it just surrounds the outside of the end zone of the stadium. So it's like a curved, the, the department is football dorms, old football dorms in a hallway. And that was the whole department. And it was just a very interesting, unique place just in itself. But anyway, people would always end up having conversations like in the hallway. And that's just where you kind of got to meet people because it was just this very long, curved hallway that goes around the end zone. Anyway, I remember David and I standing in this hallway and we were talking and I don't remember who started the conversation or what, you know, was what we were even talking about. But I remember asking David, I think you, I think we were just chit chatting about archeology. span And I said, what do you find interesting in archeology span or what do you want to study or whatever it was? And you said, paleo. <laughs> and I said, paleo. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, oh, oh, anyway. And I was like, okay, okay, cool. <laughs> I was probably like reading the the field school thing about Topper like on the wall and just said that to sound cool. Like I don't remember like, that whole interaction, but yeah. Like so affirmatively. I was like, paleo, paleolithic. I don't know. It could be a lot of things. That was my first memory of us like interacting. I can't remember if we were in a class together or or what it was, because I know we probably took a couple classes together, like mixed grad, undergrad. I may have even been a, a TA of yours at some point. I think Sierra was maybe. Okay. This was this was literally ten years ago. Like, it, yeah, like quite literally. Oh my god, I'm old. But yeah, that was ten years ago. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen Superbad, but like, uh, you know the McLovin character. If you've oh, seen that, yeah. Okay, there's a scene where he's like walking down the hallway, and then he like goes to talk to the girl. And then he just like abouts face and like runs the other direction. Well, like I was, those corridors in UT are like super awkwardly like curved. And like, yep. I was walking down and like socially anxious me, like 19 years old was like, <laughs> like walking down the hall and like you came by and I was expecting not to see anybody and you were there. And then like, you smiled at me just cause you're a polite human. And <laughs> I was like, Oh God, uh, uh, what do I do? So I just like turned around and walked the other way into a classroom. I think it was like Schrodel's office. <laughs> and I did not know like what to do. Cause I was not ready to like interact with people that day yet. And I think that was the first time I ever met you or like <laughs> saw you. I don't, I don't remember that. I don't remember that encounter, but I do okay. want to talk about a second my second David story real quick. My second memory of David was when there was a party at Dave Anderson's house um, because Dave used to throw these amazing parties, oh. back to school party, Halloween party, whatever it was, any excuse to have a, a party. And they were awesome. And anyway, I remember one night 
that we were all hanging out. And David, I'm sure you'll remember this really well. There was this little black and white cat that somebody had brought over and said it needed a home or it showed up on the doorstep and Dave said it needs a home. But somebody, you know, was like, oh, this cat needs somewhere to go. And I remember, I distinctly remember you with the cat and you were holding it and you were like, I'm going to take it home with me. And I was like, oh, is he really serious? And then that night, kind of as the evening progressed, you were like, still, you saw the cat and you said, yeah, I'm taking it home. I'm going to name it Jon Snow. And you took the cat home. And I just thought that was so cool that you had like adopted this little kitten from one of Dave's parties. And I know, I know sadly that Jon Snow is no longer with us. And I'm really, really sorry to hear that. Um, That's all right. Yeah. Jon Snow is a good cat. Yeah. <laughs> Jon Snow, John Snow lived with Connor and I for like a good year. I think he peed in his closet. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. He, he was, was a good cat. Yeah. He was like a yeah. dog. Basically he was a dog. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that story better than I do, but that's my memory of that night is you with that cat. You're like, I'm going to take it home with me. I definitely remember getting them from a professor's party. And I told my friends that, and they're like, why would you go to a party with your professor? <laughs> and I was like, uh, I don't know, but I named him Jon Snow because he's my bastard child. <laughs> that was a good story. But Yeah. So hard transition from cats, bastards, and parties and towards, uh, a different, t- I don't even know how to transition this. So you were in Greece during COVID. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how to, I was like, uh, yeah. Uh, so Greece, COVID times, did you, okay. So a couple, couple questions here. Why did you go to Greece? When did you go to Greece? And what was it like living in Greece with your daughter during a global pandemic? Oh my gosh. That's so much, isn't it? Yeah, I got, I started on this project in Greece in 2018. An archaeologist at UT, Alaitis Vandemortal, needed a zooarchaeologist for her ongoing excavations at a Bronze Age site in Greece. Um, the site's the Mitru site. Um, and she needed someone to look at the very large faunal assemblage. And so she had asked me, and I was really hesitant to do it at first because I am really a Southeastern archaeologist. But I, you know, ultimately agreed because she said, well, you know, after work every day, you can just go down to the beach bar and have a drink and have a swim and use the Internet. And I was like, hmm, that sounds awful. So <laughs> yeah, I was pulled on the beach bar. <laughs> so I started going in 2018. I spent six weeks over there actually without my my daughter, without my family just with the archaeology crew. And it, even though I was separated from them, I had a really good time and just fell in love with Greece. It's just like the most beautiful place in the entire world. And just, it's hot, but it's really, really nice. And then the following year, I applied for a research position at the American School of Classical Studies in Athens at the Malcolm H. Wiener Lab. And I actually got like the runner up spot for that. I found out in March, 2019, that I didn't get selected for the position and that, you know, I was like the runner up and I just kind of wrote it off and thought, okay, well, that's not going to happen. Oh, well. And then in June, the fall, like, you know, it was March, I found out I didn't get it. And then in June, they contacted me and said the person they'd offered the research position to had rejected it. And she had gotten another offer somewhere else and they were offering it to me. And it took me and my husband like 0.5 seconds to say, yeah, we're going to go to Greece. Let's do this. It'll be an adventure. It'll be something different. You know, we've always wanted to live abroad. So it was a one-year research position at the American School of Classical Studies in Athens. So we 
found a, a place to live. We found a school and we moved within like six weeks of finding out that I had gotten the position and just, wow. we, took our, we took our two cats with us also. We took our two younger cats. My 20 year old cat did not go with us. He was fostered for the year. I have to put that disclaimer in there. We have three cats, but only two went with us because they were younger and, and healthier. You know, it was, it was definitely an adjustment to live abroad. I didn't speak a word of Greek whenever I first went there in 2018. And I only could order coffee whenever I moved there. So we were really dependent on people being able to speak English with us or using like Google Translate. But luckily, I mean, most people in Athens speak English. So it wasn't that big of a deal. But after we adjusted, you know, we really were having a good time. It was really nice. We're making friends, doing all this stuff. And then, yeah, COVID hit us a little bit earlier than it hit the U.S. because it hit Italy at the end of February. And whenever it hit Italy... Greece started to really panic. I don't know. It was just a weird couple of weeks. I was like, oh my God, do I take the Metro? Do we send our daughter to school? You know, like what do we do? And then the Greek government put the country on lockdown, I think on like March 19th. I want to say it was like March 19th. We went on full lockdown. We couldn't go out of the house unless we had like a, a reason. We had like six reasons we could leave the house, like grocery shopping, exercise, going to the hospital. And if you didn't have a reason to be out of the house, then you would get a fine of like 150 or 250 euro. So anyway, we had to stay in- indoors pretty much for like seven weeks. And that was pretty much like the strangest time, I think of everybody's lives, but it was just really strange to just be like in a foreign country, trapped in an apartment in Athens, <laughs> couldn't go do anything. It was <laughs> Was your apartment like pretty homey or was it pretty spartan no it was it was good we we rented like an airbnb kind of under the table like i don't i don't know how else to explain it because you're not allowed to do what we did but <laughs> i hope i don't get fined for this or something but it was pretty nice place uh, we had everything we needed we were able to order stuff too if we needed it to be delivered nothing like we have here but we did end up getting like a few things like puzzles and paint and stuff to just keep ourselves and our daughter entertained. Yeah, but it was just mainly just, you know, those early days of COVID. <laughs> like, yeah, crap, what do we even do to like get through this, you know? <laughs> From what you posted, she seemed pretty like entertained and, you know, not like, like you know, cabin fevered the whole time. Yeah, I mean, I think things are definitely better now. Just she's she's going back to school in person. I think it was really hard to like move across the world away from all our friends and family, make new friends and then be isolated from them. So we're isolated from our normal friends and family and then from our new friends and family or new friends. It was just a big shock, I think, to all of us for that period of time. But luckily, Greece actually got down to like very few cases and they opened everything back up in May and we were able to spend May, June, and July kind of doing whatever we wanted to without having to worry too much about COVID from that point on. You got your beach bar time. <laughs> yes, I did. I we did we went to the <laughs> beach as much as possible. Once we knew we were moving back to the US, we went to the beach like I mean, I would try to go every day sometimes. <laughs> I was like, I'm gonna miss it so much. And I do. It was really, really great. That's awesome. So what kind of projects were you working working on there. You might have mentioned it a little bit earlier. Yeah, I was working on a Bronze Age faunal assemblage. 
And it is a absolutely gigantic assemblage. I have to use a unit here. It's not going to make any sense, but um, it's 40 crates of animal bone. And I guess the crates are like a little bit smaller than like one of those like plastic Tupperware bins, like storage bins that you might buy at like Target. It was like a little bit smaller than one of those. I had 40 of those. It was an enormous funnel assemblage. Is that Imperial crates or metric crates? (laughs) I guess it's metric because it was threes, right? I don't know. What's the conversion rate? (laughs) Yeah. 3.3 something. I never knew. I never knew what time it was, what the temperature was, what speed I was going, like what day it was the whole time I was over there. I'd be like, oh, it's 37 degrees. I have, I have no idea what that means. But okay. <laughs> or they'll say like, oh, it's just two kilometers away. Like, I would I be dead. Is that far? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, I, and I was working in a lab. I was working in the Malcolm, the Malcolm H. Wiener Lab of Archaeological Science. And that is where Takis Karkanis works. He's a director. He is a world famous geoarchaeologist. He does geomorphology. The lab is absolutely the most incredible place in the world to do archaeology. I mean, from my limited experience, it was amazing. They had full human osteology reference collection, paleoethnobotany, rocks, minerals, wow. the work. They could do DNA extraction prep, isotope extraction prep. They had FTIR, an SEM, a PXRF, and then all like the, the stuff you need for geochemistry, all those other things, the sediment things that I don't know what they are. Yeah, it was so cool to be there. And there were all these like great researchers who would come and use the facilities. They also had a library for archaeological research. It was just, it was such a cool experience. I was so happy to get that, so honored to get that position. And then to get to go and have that experience was amazing, 100%. And I would say for anybody listening, like I would I would highly recommend working some like if you're interested in archaeology like work somewhere awesome like greece or the mediterranean seriously it was so great it was a big step up from rock shelter survey on the cumberland plateau (laughs) i'm sure (laughs) yeah (laughs) it sounds like greece like you know cares about their heritage and wants to fund you know the research into the past there with all that cool equipment yeah no it was it was great it's a really great place I will say, though, because of Greece's history with their archaeological collections and remains, particularly the Parthenon sculptures that are in the British Museum, Greece does not allow export of any archaeological materials outside of the country. So they encourage researchers to come to Greece, actually do the, the research there in-house. So I was actually unable to, you know, bring any of those faunal remains back to the U.S. to study. I have to go there to actually study them, which again, is just a terrible, terrible shame. (laughs) It's really interesting. It must be interesting to study something that's maybe not at the forefront. You know, it seems like with Greece, all we hear is about, you know, like you said, the Parthenon, all these things. Mm -hmm. Did they, did they value this kind of Bronze Age research you were doing? I think the Bronze Age archaeologists do, but <laughs> I think like, I mean, I, I, you know, from what I've seen, I, I, it seems like the classical period, you know, is just the, the the thing that people study over there that they're really interested in, that they fund. You know, like when you go to the museum, 
the Bronze Age, like, you know, pretty much Bronze Age and earlier kind of have like a short little spot in the museum, you know, like just a couple little exhibits and then everything else is like classical period. Ah, uh, gotcha. Yeah. But I don't know. I think the Bronze Age is pretty cool. I think all uh, of them are pretty cool though. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's super cool. On that note, we're going to put some bronzer on our faces and uh, move on to the next segment. Oh, that was worse than mine. Welcome back to episode 35 of a Life in Ruins podcast. We are interviewing Megan Dennison, and we want to start this section off by kind of piggybacking what we were talking about before about Greece. Um, and we were more, we were interested in, you know, as, as David had mentioned, the, the logistics of moving to another country, like getting a visa and, you know, putting your kid into school. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So, you know, you can stay in another country for like 90 days without a visa. After that, you have to have one. And I mean, I think for most countries and you usually have to have a sponsor for it. Um, and so we had the American School of Classical Studies sponsored my visa, but because I was going to bring my family with me, they were able to to, font, to sponsor all three of us, my husband, my daughter, and myself. So we okay. had to apply for the visa with the Greek consulate here in the U.S., and we had to go down to Atlanta and meet with somebody in person, take photographs, fill out all this paperwork, pay money to get our visas. And we were doing it so last minute. It was really stressful. Usually you want to have, I mean, ideally, I think you'd want to have six months, honestly, to just get everything in order that you need because you need like birth certificates. We needed marriage certificates. We needed all kinds, all kinds of documents for this. You know, doing it within six weeks was crazy. Oh, we also had to do an FBI background check too, which takes a little bit of time. So once we got all of our paperwork, I think we got it probably like the week before we were supposed to leave. You know, we were on our way. Like I've never, I don't think I've ever flown one way before. Like I've always had like a round trip ticket. So it was just really crazy to just get on an airplane with my two cats and a million suitcases and my child and husband. I forgot you went with your cats too. Yeah. Like we had cats on the plane. Our friend, our friend Kayla went with us to help us like, with all the luggage and the cats and the child. Like it was just a lot to have to coordinate in, in the airplane. <laughs> so we help, luckily <laughs> to get, to get there. We just had so much stuff. It was crazy, but yeah, we flew one way in the 90 day period. We had to also get our, um, what do you call it? Residency permit. So Luckily, the American school helped with that also. They have a, a person who's designated to help American students or, or researchers get the residency permit because you have to go to a government office and stand in line and fill out more paperwork and get photos taken, pay more money, like all of these things you have to do. And it was just very helpful to have somebody there, a Greek person who could help us through that, who, navigating that whole process. Because I think like bureaucracies are difficult to navigate like wherever you are in the world. And especially if it's, you know, it's, I think it's hard enough sometimes to just navigate it here in the U S when it's your own culture and your own language. I still think it can be a little bit difficult sometimes, but you know, going somewhere else, I would never have figured it out. Um, And by the end, like when we moved back to the U S I had to get my cats 
a pet passport. They both had to get passports to come back to the U.S. And by that point, I was really used to the Greek bureaucracy. Yeah, they had to have a pet passport. Yeah, they still have it. It's like, well, it's like it looks like a passport for the European Union. And like you're if your animal is going to travel in the European Union, you have to you have to have it. So, yeah, we had that. But anyway, by the time, you know, I went to get all that, I had to navigate that bureaucratic system on my own. And I just I was like so used to everything by that point. I was like, okay, I know exactly what to do. (laughs) Like, just like I go up to the window. I ask for help in English. They point me to another person. I go to that person. I ask for help (laughs) to another person. And eventually I get to the right person who's willing to help me. (laughs) So we got our residency permits. And then at that point, you know, we were we were set. And that was pretty exciting. I've never had residency in another country before like that. I thought that was pretty cool. And all three of us got it. So we were legit getting to live in Greece. It was it was pretty cool. Yeah, I guess I've only ever traveled oh, tra- traveled internationally. Did you spell burnt uh, toast? I'm seriously worried about I, you. I, I'm worried about myself constantly. It's, you know, selection day, whatever. So I've traveled before and I've had to get like, you know, the passport and do that. And that like the extent of my, the riskiness is like you're finding an Airbnb that has a clean toilet that I'm like, okay, that one looks all right. <laughs> like you got to find... Because you're going there for school is like the main thing or like for an educational purpose, kind of like a work thing. So like mm-hmm. that's on, on your plate first too. So I, I guess in the, I'm losing my train of thought with this, but like in the beginning, when you go for that, do they, for the, uh, the audience listening, if they wanted to go do something like you did, does the school or whoever like is sponsoring you, like give you a list of steps of what to do or were you just straight up on your own? Like they just said, be here at the state. No, they laid it all out. Okay. I mean, crystal clear. And they had a, a, like a form whenever I got the offer, they, they sent me like a checklist of all these things that I needed to do to get the visas. And I also forgot to mention that I was there. My visa was actually, like an archaeology visa. Like they have a specific one for archaeology. And I thought that was really cool because it wasn't like, it wasn't a student visa. It was like literally an archaeology visa. Oh, really? Yeah. You have like an antiquities permit? Yeah. The the excavation has a permit from the Greek Ministry of Culture that I fall under. I'm listed on that to be part of the excavation. And I'm pretty sure I had to provide proof of, or I think the American school was my proof of, of working there or something like that. Yeah, they were very, they were very, very strict about it. I think, again, just given Greece's history with a lot of their, their cultural artifacts that have been taken to museums around the world that they are trying desperately to get back and which they should 100% get back. I have a, I have a stand on a block that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> when British people come through with an archaeology visa, do they like pat them down extra? They probably do. Um, <laughs> I would imagine. I mean... Yeah, I, I would. It's just good practice at this point. Yeah, I, I think I would. Yeah, <laughs> the, actually, the American school was connected with the British school. You know, there's some overlap there. But I think like my big thing with the Parthenon statues is whenever I went to the Acropolis Museum for the first time in 2018, I was looking at all the things they had, all the friezes and, and sculptures. And I was and it. They all said replica, you know, and it says original British Museum. And I was like, what? Why are those not here? 
in the Acropolis Museum, right next to the Acropolis. Why are they in the British Museum? And then I started looking more into it. And it's like it's this ongoing battle between Greece and the British Museum trying to get those Parthenon sculptures back to Athens. And, you know, I'm 100 percent for them being returned to Athens. And it's, it's an ongoing I think a lot of museums are grappling with this right now about cultural remains that they have acquired through colonial means that, you know, places are wanting them back. Cultures are wanting those items back. And I, you know, I'm always going to side with the culture who wants them back, that they should have them. So anyway, that's my soapbox. Sorry. I really get That's a great soapbox to be on. (laughs) And uh, more importantly, like you've consistently through this episode have talked about the, uh, the Parthenon marbles, which is excellent because you've done your research, which is no surprise. Most people who are listening would know these as the Elgin marbles. Yes. Right. And that's named after the antiquarian so-and-so Elgin who got the marbles out of Greece into, into England. Mm-hmm. So that's their common name. And the Greeks are like, oh God, we don't cuss anymore. Right. Screw you. <laughs> They're the Parthenon marbles. Like those are the Parthenon statues. They're not named after Elgin. Like even mm-hmm. like at least start calling them the right name. And you're right. And I, I think we might have talked about this before. Um, I know one, we made a meme about, you know, that old uh, Pepperidge Farm remembers that Family Guy did. Yeah. <laughs> we made a meme that's like that dude is like Pepperidge Farms remembers. And it was like Elgin, uh, the Parthenon marbles back in, in Greece. And boy, oh boy, did we just piss off the Brits that day. They were like, yawn, old news, talk about something. Screw you guys. But the second one, you know, the the crux of my argument here is that there is a paradigm shift occurring or a transition in museum collections globally in which many countries that were formerly colonized are wanting their objects back. I think James Acaster does a great joke. He's a British comedian who talks about the great heist of Britain going around and taking everyone's stuff. And he mentions, you know, the British museum isn't full of British people. It's people from other countries coming here to look at their stuff. (laughs) And that's accurate. And I know um, from a personal perspective, the British museum has, uh, has a Pawnee collection there and they've like refused to work with us. Like we, we even, we're not asking for it back. I mean, we are, but we're like, Hey, can you give us the measurements on these shields? And like, we'll get to you. And we've been waiting for three years. It's like, you know, could you at least rotate the pictures 180 degrees because you have them upside down? Like even just like little things in terms of display or just like basic like dimensions. Like, hey, can we can we know what what this is? And they just refuse to work with it. And it's just like, okay. And, you know, that's that's a huge question here in, um, you know, in, in American museums that that there is that same those same discussions are going on in museums across the United States in terms of uh, getting things back and legality. Yeah. I mean, fingers crossed that someday the uh, marbles return home. Where they rightfully belong. Yeah. Were they were they present when the Turks blew up the Parthenon? Do you know? I don't know. You'll have to ask a like a more seasoned Greek archaeologist that question. I really don't know. I think they're the reason they don't have it is because they were worried that they would be destroyed and that they were protecting them. Like, I think I don't know. Gosh, I don't want to say the wrong thing here. Yeah, I think like for people that don't know, like the ruins didn't of the Parthenon did not um, degrade naturally. It was actually um, it's a whole bunch of things that 
that did yeah. it. Were, when the during the Turkish or Ottoman the occupation were taken in 1801, it says. Okay, so they were taken before, I think. Well, there was there was an occupation by the Ottomans in in Athens, and they stored their gunpowder there, and mm-hmm. it went off, and that's actually what led to the destruction of the Acropolis, uh, the the Parthenon. It wasn't that it, they just left it. Um, to degrade over time, that that's actually a very recent state since it's it's building since it's uh, was first built in Greece way back when. Q Gerard Butler. <laughs> I don't know the construction date. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're a good science show. We just said way back then. <laughs> way back then. I, I mean, I didn't want to like throw dates. Out. I have no idea when the Acropolis was built. I'll be completely honest. I knew. Um, I know it's twenty four hundred. There, there we go. <laughs> 2400 BCE I just, I just before Common Era. Look, David said Common Era this time. Are you happy? Yeah, I'm very happy. Before Common Era, though. One yeah, that's what I said. I'm looking it up right now. Fifth century. Wow, so I was very wrong. Okay. BCE. Okay, okay. What did I say? Okay, okay, okay. Back. You said BCE, dude. I was agreeing with you. Uh, hey, we have a we have, we have a guest. <laughs> we have a guest here. Her name is Megan. She likes to talk about things. <laughs> So I know we, I know we probably don't have enough time to, you know, really get into the the woods with this, but we wanted to ask you because, you know, I just got married. These people over here have significant others, but we, you know, and we did, we weren't married during getting our degrees or anything like that. Um, And it's, it's kind of hard for us to fathom being a, a mother, you know, while also getting a PhD or while getting a master's or while working or anything like that. How is that gone? Is there any tips you could you can send out to our listeners? Uh, I mean, it's definitely been a something to get used to. I say that before I had my daughter my second year of the PhD program, and before she was born, I would routinely work, you know, nine, 10, 12 hours a day with like out even thinking about it. You know, like I would just work all day long. And I think that was probably the hardest transition for me to make was that I couldn't work like that anymore. Like I couldn't just sit and work all day long um, if I wanted to. So I had to start really planning my work and making sure I had childcare to just simply sit at the computer and do stuff. So yeah, that was a, that was a hard transition, but I don't know. Overall, I mean, it's just something that everybody has to balance in their own way, whatever that way may be that you have you have childcare that you utilize, or you have very supportive family members who come and help out. I've been very fortunate that I've had amazing friends. I've had a very supportive husband. I've had childcare and that has helped me significantly. I'll I'll say that like having, I I think I kind of want to say this for people who have children in grad school and also people who are friends with people who have children in grad school. My friends who don't have children who continue to support me, to be my friend, to help me when I needed things, you know, like sometimes they would just come and watch my child while I taught a class or I remember that like while I was doing something. Yeah. Like it was just so nice to have that support. Um, and just feeling like I could, I could still go out and hang out with my friends and I could bring my daughter along and it wouldn't be a problem. You know, like I just really enjoyed having my very, very supportive group of people behind me as I went through it. I think that was probably like the most important thing was just feeling like I could still be part of the grad program. I could still do the normal grad school things and take care of a small child at the same time. However, I will say I did start the PhD program 
quite some time ago. And my daughter is now five. She's in kindergarten. And I never planned on being in grad school still, like like with her being this old. So I've definitely, it definitely has slowed me down. Like, and I think it slows down a lot of people who have children, but yeah, I've definitely, it, it was a, not really a grinding halt, but it got close to a grinding halt there for a while in terms of just what I was able to accomplish and, and get done. But yeah, it's just a give and take, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we want to, you know, that's, that's super cool that you have this community to support you. And, you know, we, we definitely think it's awesome uh, and really want to stress support and think highly of folks who are doing this. It's a, it's a lot of work. So like we have a lot of respect. Yeah, God for, damn. I can barely take care of myself. You got a yeah. husband and a kid and you're going through all this and I'm like, and two cats, three cats. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm solo. I'm just rogue agent. I do what I want and I'm having, I'm struggle busting through it. So yeah. I mean, yeah, it it's, I mean, I, I've, I've seen people come in and out with children and I've seen people come in and out that don't have children and like the way like, I just can't imagine, like, you know, just happen to, like, feed, like, make sure that, like, you know, your, your kids have dinner. Yeah. Because I can't even feed myself some days. And then, like, you got to do all that. Like, it, it's a task. And then, like, bath time and then, like, all that, you know, it's just. It's a whole thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then I, you got to write notes on a paper. <laughs> yeah. I come home at, like, 3 o'clock in the afternoon with her. And I'm basically, like, taking care of her until she goes to bed about 830 and then, you know, then I can get on my computer and actually sit down and work, you know, between like nine and midnight every night. It's just kind of my routine now, but that's just how you have to do it, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. A lot of work. <laughs> I don't want to be discouraging in any way. I think a lot of people, like, I think, I think grad, I know I, was, I know we're getting a little over here, but I think grad school it's it like comes at a time in your life when you're like starting to get married or have children, if you're going to do those things. And I think it's just kind of something that everybody has to navigate around if they decide to do those things. So I don't want to be discouraging at all. I just want to say that it is a lot to balance, but I mean, I think even for professors when they go, uh, when you get a job and then you have a family too, it's the same balancing act, you know, as when you're a grad student. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess speaking of not discouraging and encouraging, but I just want to thank you for when I was an undergrad, not knowing what I wanted to do with like with life or everything. Like I could talk to you about stuff and you told me like, yeah, just go to grad school. And like, you also just helped me like figure out how to apply, or at least I asked you about it. And then you were curious about where I applied and had I heard back and stuff. So, uh, I wouldn't be where I am without your, like your little pushes. So I really appreciate it, Megan. No problem. Yeah. And I yeah. think I also pushed you to, to create your world famous Instagram account too. So I take full credit for that. <laughs> Also, <laughs> world famous. So you're the reason we have to deal with this little. <laughs> How many followers do you have now? Like thirty thousand. Like it's insane. You have so many followers. It's, it's up there. For, yeah. for, it's for someone that was told he'd get nowhere with dogs. Look at him. <laughs> Just look at him. We're proud of him. He's a, he's an American success story. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Megan, thanks for coming on. You, you, you the real MVP out here. Oh, real talk. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You the real yep. MVP because this is this <laughs> knocked that one out of the park. Oh my. <laughs> I forgot I had the soundboard. I'm so All sorry. Right. I'll be quiet. I'll be quiet. I'll be quiet. I'll be quiet. <laughs> Yeah, so we this the show is called A Life in Ruins, and we've got to ask this question. So if you would give them the chance, 
would you still choose to live a life in ruins? <laughs> Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> awesome. Well, Megan, again, we're so glad to have you. Uh, yeah. Just, yeah, glad to have you on. Tell Vera I said, hey. Cool. I don't think she'll remember me. She was probably one when she saw me last, but you know. <laughs> No big deal. Well, excellent. Well, everyone, we just interviewed Megan Dennison, PhD candidate at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And with that, we are out. But be sure to stay tuned for Connor's joke at the end. Maybe he has some uh, Knox Knox jokes for us. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah, I've been sitting on that one. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. Once again, I want to give a shout out to my father, Dean Johnnen. He supplied me a list of dad jokes. So these are dad jokes from my dad. <laughs> Uh, did you all know that the first french fries weren't cooked in France? They were cooked in Greece. <laughs> oh. That's actually pretty good. Yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> impressed. I'm like, okay. Okay. All right. Well, we're out. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. So, uh, Megan, you want to describe the first time? I don't remember uh, us meeting. Oh, okay. Um, we, it was at SAA in 2019. We like our groups merged at some like tourist shop area. Um, I know, I think you were with David, maybe somebody else. I was with some people. And old town Albuquerque. Old, yeah. Old, oh, yeah. yeah. You're right now. And um, we needed to get back to the hotel for some reason. And like there were six people and you had a car, but you, oh, can, only, you can only seat five people. And I could seat two comfortably. Like it's yeah. a fiesta. Oh Let's, you're being liberal with five. It was like the smallest car ever. But I remember like, <laughs> I remember I was like really insistent that we could all fit in the car. And I remember you were just, you just looked so annoyed, but you were like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this, I guess. Cause I have to <laughs> be nice. And like, I remember, I don't remember who it was, but I, I know a person ended up like having to lay like, across Pete like was three, it me or Stephanie I can't remember Stephanie okay. that's what it was yeah and she and she had to like lay across people on the back seat and we were like so crammed in your tiny car um and I remember you were just like you were just like oh my gosh this is ridiculous <laughs> there's like sparks yeah, coming I, off I the ground that. from all the grinding metal because I recall it someone was like yeah Carlton has a car and I said like my car seats too comfortably yeah 
And I was the one who was being pushy about the whole thing. That was me. So that's. That yeah, was- I remember. No, yes, yes. That was a fun time. <laughs> that was a fun time. That was, I had a good time that conference. You had one more thing you wanted to say, Megan, before we, we signed off? Yes. I just want to say thank you guys so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no problem. Glad to have you. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thank you.